Welcome to the Living Out Podcast, helping people, churches and society talk about faith and sexuality. Hello and welcome to the Living Out Podcast. We're a group of friends who love Jesus and who also are same-sex attracted. And so we've had to wrestle with really big questions around faith and sexuality. And we love to use this podcast and lots of other resources we produce to help others to do the same. It's really great to have you with us today as we continue in our Meet the Authors series, where we're learning about and learning from some of the people who've written for us on our website, livingout.org. And today, we've got a friend of mine, someone I've looked up to for a long time, have learned a lot from, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from him and learning from some of his wisdom. And of course, I'm thrilled to be joined by another friend of mine, uh, my colleague, Ed Shaw. Ed, Christmas is fast approaching now, so I've been wondering, do you have a favourite Christmas film? Uh, not a film, no, because um, oh. no, I just I, I don't. Ha- We've never had this sort of all watch what it you know some crummy film from the sort of nineties or noughties. Instead, my family watch uh, that it was basically a, a children's TV adaptation, BBC of the Box of Delights in the eighties, uh, which is done absolutely brilliantly. Um, and every Christmas uh, we still watch that um, and uh, worth, well, well worth getting hold of, probably on YouTube or something. Bots of Delights, forget any film, watch a TV's a, T- a BBC TV drama from the 1980s. That's the way to have a happy Christmas. Well, that has gone completely out of my head. What is Box of Delights or what's it about? Or should I know Do you not know one of the finest pieces of children's literature? John oh, Maysfield. dear, no. No, oh, you know, I don't geez. read. I, I'm afraid the Living Out staff team's got no sort of cultural <laughs> hinterland to draw on, which is a great. We just are in different me. places culturally. That's the um, yeah. Well, do you? You probably do have some absolute Christmas film, which well, is probably some dreadful musical. Well, the Muppet Christmas Carol is the obvious <laughs> winner on this. I mean, what is not to like Dickings and puppets and amazing songs in a screen musical? Yeah, I mean, just can't get better. Okay, I'm just going to weep for a few moments. <laughs> We'll have to um, have a Christmas event where we watch both and uh, you know, see if we can converse each other to them. Well, let me introduce today's guest. We're really thrilled to have Andrew Wilson with us today, speaker, author, teaching pastor. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you start by telling us a few key details about yourself, just kind of where you're from, what you do, so we can get to know you a bit. Great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm Andrew Wilson. I'm 44 years old, um, which I said when I introduced myself at a church recently, and they all laughed at me as if that was a weird thing to say. But to me, it's an obvious <laughs> way of placing yourself. Shows that I do know what the Box of Delights is, rather than, well. as you clearly don't. Um, I am married to Rachel. I have three children who are 14, 12, and 6. I'm teaching pastor at King's Church London, and I have been there for about six years. And I write a bunch of you know books and other things and do some theology and training and other stuff brilliant okay what would be the most important question today on this podcast then do you have a favorite christmas film dying oh <laughs> can i say that's the first time that's i see you. someone just <laughs> shut shut andrew bunt up on this one that's brilliant Thank yeah that's you. Well true done. i just literally didn't know what to say that doesn't happen not even hard <laughs> there's no musical numbers in that film no i confess i've not <laughs> seen it isn't it the one that's you know it's a christmas film but isn't it a christmas film kind of thing it's definitely a Christmas film. It's got a messianic subplot. Oh, oh, okay. Maybe I need to look into that then. No, you've you've got him now. You've got him. There may not be a, there may not him. be a song, but a messianic subplot is <laughs> yeah, enough to yeah. draw him in. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 
Andrew, it's great to have you uh, with us. And you've written a fantastic article for us um, called The True uh, Sexual uh, Revolution. And I, I guess this probably comes out of a lot of the work you've done uh, preaching and teaching um, in London, uh, um, in a city that is uh, sort of massively affected by the sexual revolution of the 1950s and 60s, um, and then sort of teaching on on on, on books like Cor- Corinthians and then just sort of seeing the parallels. Uh, do you want to sort of explain some of the parallels between the London of the 21st century and the Corinth of the 1st century? Yeah, I think I mean, London is probably just like other cities, just a bit more so, isn't it, in, in, in a British context. But I think Corinth is the most um, contemporary feeling city, at least when it comes to the sort of ethical issues they're wrestling with. And I, I, when you when you read the first century letters, I, I think there is a, a very strong, um, there's a very, you know, the force is strong with this one when you read Corinth and, and try and apply it to modern issues, not just about sexuality, actually, but about idolatry and about leadership factionalism and uh, about, you know, scepticism about the supernatural and the future life. Lots and lots in Corinthians, but particularly around sex, where Paul, unusually for him, and doesn't normally what Paul does in his letters is sort of gives you some theology and some reasons to worship and praise and then towards the end of the letter starts going right now we need to get into some application whereas in Galatians and and particularly 1 Corinthians you end up with quite a different shape where he almost starts with the problems and works through the problems one at a time and then builds to a much more theological conclusion and sex and sexuality is a very big part of that because he's trying to help people see how the the extent to which sexual morality runs amok in Corinth needs to be stood against by living a, just with a different basis for identity, a different basis for morality, a different basis for marriage, a different basis for singleness. And that he grounds all of those things in theology. And when you read them and start thinking about these are some of those things that are happening in our culture, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is probably the only letter where you could read and think these guys were more extreme than we are in some of their sexual experimentation. Like most most of the time you think we're very progressive and they're very socially conservative and starchy in the, in the age of the Bible. You read 1 Corinthians and you start with saying, one of you sleeping with your stepmother and you're like, oh gosh, that that wouldn't usually happen even now in uh, in most even pretty progressive environments. And then he just goes through them all and says, this is what we how we apply it to same-sex relations. This is how we apply it to suing each other, to singleness, to marriage, to pr- visiting prostitutes. You think, wow, what kind of church is this that people think it's okay to do these things? And to a point they seem to, which means we get this wonderful teaching material from Paul, but we also have a, a letter that feels like it's been written to contemporary London or contemporary you know, Bristol or Hastings or whatever it might be. And I find that incredibly refreshing and therefore quite easy to preach from and apply because it's so fresh and it feels like he's speaking to the same kind of cultural moment we're in. Yeah, I can remember preaching on Ron Corinthians a few years ago, having exactly that feeling of, you know, rather than sort of travel, trying to travel back to Bible times and then think, how can I apply it to today? It just felt about as contemporary as the Bible gets, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, obviously go back to the Bible to, you know, to work out, how we should live, uh, particularly in the area of, of sexual ethics, is not a particularly a popular thing to do. People expect that you're just going to travel back to uh, Corinth and and have a lot of rules. Uh, how do you speak into that sort of pushback? It's just going to be rules. That's all that that's all that Paul does. He he says no. Um, it's not going to help us because we're just going to get a lot of nasty rules from nasty old Paul. I think when I hear that kind of comment, it depends where it's coming from. I think if it's coming from a, a someone who says, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, I'd actually want to challenge a deeper conviction, which is 
the rules or at least if what you mean by rules is doing what jesus said then you need to make your peace with that because that's quite a big go into the world and teach them every, to obey everything i commanded so if there's underneath it a sort of you can't have rules are bad and i go I, you might not want to call them rules if it helps you to say teachings or commandments or whatever but i think you that's that's part of discipleship and it's pretty integral but i think if if it's someone more outside more adjacent to the church someone saying isn't this just going to be this is just trying to restrict my freedom without a christian assumption i think i probably want to talk about two things i want to say that every culture has its own mores on sexuality and every culture has things that you do and do not do and the, uh, even the mores that we have have changed dramatically in the last 20 years even the what's going on right right now i'm literally i'm speaking to you towards the end of an england match in qatar where there's been enormous debate about what rules for sexuality you should or shouldn't have and what players in matches should do or not say about them and that's been in the last you know 15 minutes of my life and we, we're very aware of that. So I want to talk about the fact that every culture has those and ours now are not self-evidently true any more than anyone else's. So we all got rules. The question is, are they good ones? And the second thing I want to say is that when Paul does reason with the Corinthians on the basis of scripture and relating to sexuality, he doesn't just say, you should do this, sit down and shut up. He gives an enormous amount of theological and anthropological structure and shape and story and grammar to explain why he thinks those things are so vital for human flourishing he, he grounds it in your union with christ he grounds it in the, the communion table he grounds it in the holiness and sanctity of the church and the difference between the church and the world he brings in angels at one point i um, mean he, he just will just talk in all sorts of different angles to say this is not just arbitrary rules this is embedded in the structure of the way god has made the world and the way he's made human beings men and women to flourish and function and what marriage is and what therefore sex represents so or i would want to push back against the idea that rules are bad but if someone did have a problem with the rules, I'd want to say, well, that's not all that's going on here. They're, those rules, if you want to call them that, are grounded in much larger cosmic level convictions about the way the world's been made by its creator. And we need to live in line with that if we're to flourish. And, and I find just rereading your article earlier today, actually just hearing you now, um, it just really helps when, you know, to see that his sexual ethics tied in with everything about the gospel, everything about the universe. It really helps in the sort of context I'm in a lot of my time, the Church of England, where I'm being urged to see, you know, keeping to historic Christian sexual ethics as a sort of minority sport that I can do if I want to, but it doesn't really matter that much. I think one of the really helpful things about what you argue both now and in the, in the, in the article is, no, this is tied in, yeah, with the whole gospel story and how the whole cosmos has been structured by the creator God. Yeah, it, it, it is and it does. And I think it's, it's fascinating how much paul draws even when he sort of says things like what are, what are you thinking or don't you know he's trying to step back from here's the thing that we're arguing about is like can a man go and visit prostitutes or can a man have sex with a man or whatever but he pans back and he goes don't you know don't be don't be deceived and don't you know he keeps saying those things it's a, you've been tricked into thinking that this issue is just about this but actually it's about your body being a temple of the holy spirit or about you not being your own and being bought with a price or uh, about the church being a holy place in which you, you've got to actually cut, cut out that which is corrupt and, and destructive to it, like mold spreading through a loaf of bread. You've got to get rid of these things that are going to destroy you from the inside if you're not careful. And he keeps doing it, even through the chapter on marriage, to say this is the present, the world in its present form is passing away. You, you just misread the clock. You don't know. You, you've, you've got your time scales wrong. You've got your cosmology wrong. You've got your understanding between the church and the world wrong. You don't understand union with Christ. So they're pretty foundational truths that he appeals to. And I think scripture as a whole does that, but 1 Corinthians is a particularly powerful example of it, 
And of course, all of that teaching sandwiched in between a major section on the cross at the start of the letter and a major section on the resurrection at the end. So he's very keen to anchor this strong theological corrective on ethics in a much bigger story that he keeps drawing the Corinthians back to. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And all Anglicans listening in, take note. Um, but uh, for now, actually, while we're sort of talking about this, you know, interacting with Christians you disagree with, which is what I spend a lot of my time doing in a Church of England context, you've also done that um, in some public debates with uh, revisionist progressives, whatever they might call themselves, like uh, Rob uh, Bell and Steve Chalk. Any sort of things you've learned from debating with people like that around issues of sexual ethics and... Um, yeah, just any 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 lessons for an Anglican like me to learn from, um, or for anybody I else. I doubt it. Ed, to be honest, <laughs> <That's very good. laughs> I think I learned a lot of the time, but this was at whatever it was eight years mm. ago, nine, ten years ago. I'm not sure, and it feels like, not in a strange way, it feels to me like very little has changed. When I read, you know, even just we were talking, you know, the Bishop of Oxford stuff just this couple of weeks ago, I think yeah, they, the shape of that argument's basically the same as what Brian McLaren and Steve Chalk and Rob Bell were all saying. I think the Rob Bell debate was particularly fascinating for me because it, it, I realised how how foundational a question had just not been answered, which is, are you, do you think that Jesus, were he here today, would say, yeah, yeah, great, knock yourself out, go for it, have sex with who you want? Or are you saying that Jesus didn't say that, but we've now learnt more than he knew? And that, that was, that's still a pretty foundational issue for me that for anyone has to wrestle with is, are you saying Jesus is wrong? Or are you saying, actually, if you were to read everything Jesus said and his apostles said, they were saying you shouldn't have sex with people of the same sex, but there's we've moved beyond that now. And I do still think that is the, fact, the fork in the road. And obviously, if you're dealing in a, in a communion like yours, where there's plenty of people for whom basically biblical authority isn't the final arbiter on these things, you have to read it along with you know, reason, and which basically means we get to decide which bits of the Bible we believe. Then that's then they've almost decided which side of the fork of the road they are, and I just go, well, I'm I'm very unlikely to come on the same page as you because I'm just starting from different premises, so, and I understand that. Um, but with people who, as many of those individuals were, and still some in our day who are questioning the doctrine, are saying, oh no, I still think of myself as someone who believes the Bible, um, but I I I still think this is okay. I think to press that question is still a helpful thing to do. Ten years on, it's like. Oh, where are you going? But the conversation's moved on so much and so many people have come out. These were among the first really to say we're we're evangelicals and we're, I mean, say coming out, bad choice of words perhaps, but we're, we're saying we now think it's fine, gay marriage is great. You know, this is all to do with the later Obama years kind of period. Um, but things have moved a lot in the last eight years. So probably what I said now, then would not be the kind of thing you'd debate now. But I do think the foundational fork in the road is, is basically still there. It's like, I, is, do you? Ultimately, are you going to receive the authority of the word of God over your life on this? Or are you going to say, we have to find another way of making it fit with contemporary concerns on this matter? And I just think that's quite a pretty foundational thing that we, of course, we have, even if we get there on sexuality, we might find there's another issue where we don't like what the Bible says. And we're going to have to confront that as well. So it's not, it's not unique to this. It just happens that this is the issue that our generation is particularly seeing that play out in. Yeah. So in effect, actually what you're, you know, rightly energy to do is in in discussions with people that Christians might disagree, or actually discussions with anybody, is that actually copy what Paul does, which is zoom out big picture stuff, isn't it? And I think again and again, certainly at living out in discussions I have in the Anglican communion, you've just said in discussions you've had, actually zooming out big picture stuff, asking people questions about their presuppositions, often the way to go. Thank you. 
I hope you're enjoying this podcast. As a charity, Living Out relies on the generosity of people like you to enable us to produce lots of free resources to help same-sex attracted Christians and to equip the church. So if you like what we do, please consider supporting us financially. You can give a one-off donation or set up monthly support by going to the website livingout.org give. Thank you so much. Andrea, I'd love to talk a bit about your experience of teaching on sexuality. I think you've been teaching sexuality for many years. An earlier talk I'm aware of from you was from uh, back way back in 2007, a series your church did on 1 Corinthians. And you did a talk called Sexuality in Scripture. And I don't think I've ever told you this, but that was very significant for me. I have a very clear memory of listening to it on, presumably, MP3 player back then in a, a car. <laughs> on a record player, on a record way. player. <laughs> <laughs> that would be you, Ed, not me. No, I was in the back of the car with my parents on the way to holiday somewhere, kind of secretly hidden you know, away in the corner, as it were, listening to this talk. And it was so helpful as someone who probably had just begun to tell one or two people of my own experience. Um, and I looked back at the talk the other day, I just thought, I wonder what you said. And I think it still stands up as well to the test of time. It's still a brilliant talk, actually, on uh, oh, being very pastoral, really sensitive, but very clear on this isn't who we are, that our, it's not our identity. We choose how we respond to these desires and yeah it was so so helpful and so I thought I'd ask you why did you feel it was so important to be teaching this even 15 years ago well I don't think many people were that was quite a few years before Living Out was launched not many people I think were doing the kind of teaching you did in that preach that sermon series why then and why now do you think it's so important for us to teach on this well firstly thank you because I did not know that that's a really that's lovely to hear and um that's yeah it makes you think doesn't it what do you teaching now that in 15 mm. years time some young person will come to you and say oh that, that really helped me so that's a real blessing thank you so one of the things is just expository preaching yay um as in you go through the <laughs> book of one corinthians and you have to take take what's there and we just and we did and, it, and graham marsh and i went i he basically said well he's going to preach through a series of things and i'm going to do a whole series on one corinthians and i spent a year a year and a half going through the letter and then you have to cover everything. So you have to do head coverings and food offered to idols and the whole caboodle. And of course, the sexuality came up uh, at some length. So I think that's one reason. But I do think behind that, that the other reason was that when, so as I relate, and you know, in the in that message and elsewhere, uh, this was a big struggle for me as a teen. I was attracted to boys. I was at boarding school and didn't really see girls much, and uh, and really wrestled with it for about four or five years and didn't couldn't didn't know how to process it and journaled about it a little bit still got the records in my loft but just felt like I, I just don't know what to make of this and how to handle it and i think i realized there was just very little if no context to talk about that in the church and i thought this church has got to be i think i've always believed that, that the church has got to be the place where sticky issues like this are talked about first rather than reactively mm. so we did the same when you know with the, with trans issues and so on i think just try to get out in front of these things and doing the same now with things we think we need the church needs to engage with or race or whatever because i think if you don't then the then the people of god it's too almost too late by the time the conversation moved and the church starts preaching on it and you guys have been massively helping many many people like that with what you're doing because i think if you wait until an issue becomes really big like now gay marriage is legalized what are you going to do and suddenly the church starts going oh we better figure out what we think by that point it's is too well, it's not too late but it it makes become becomes much more difficult with every passing month or year uh once the issue's gone into the public space and everyone's working out what to do um so i think there was a conviction there as a young preacher probably we've just got to get in front of things which i still hold but part of it as i say is just the word of god speaks about it and mm. it is it's a great you know the the letter is a great one to go through. And I've, the odd thing is I've never preached through that letter since. 
uh, since done a PhD on it, written a commentary on it. We haven't done a series on 1 Corinthians since then. In, uh, even in London, I've not done it yet. Um, I'm sure we will. But uh, so that was actually something that I was, I was just blessed, I think, by the, the discipline of going through a whole book from beginning to end. Yeah, no, that's really good. I think the getting ahead of the question thing is so key, as you say. And also, I guess one of the reasons that talk helped me was your openness about your own story. And so just talk about real life experience is so important. But also the fact it was the fact that a pastor was openly, confidently talk about this topic in front of their whole church did, I think, maybe begin to think, maybe it isn't so absurd that I might be able to talk to more people like this. Maybe I don't have to have this as such a hidden thing that one or two people will know, but for most of my life, no one will kind of know. And I think as those of us who have yeah, the privilege of teaching or, or leading churches and pastoring, we get to set the tone and set the opportunity that it's okay to talk about things. That's also really key. And that's the thing I've seen you do in lots of contexts, including in youth contexts. And I wanted to ask you about one very memorable um, memory I have of you teaching on sexuality, which was at a youth festival with uh, several thousand teenagers in a big tent where you basically reenacted a wedding ceremony um, with actors and all sorts uh, as your talk. And I just thought, what if you could tell us a bit about a bit about that and why you chose to do that talk in that way? Yes, yeah, so I was asked by so Joel Virgo, who's always I think just been excellent on this, to say we have to teach young people this stuff, like really, really blatantly, really take it on. Um, asked me, could you do a series on Christian sexuality? And I think I probably did it. May have done all four of them. I certainly did two or three of them messages that that week. But the one you were talking about, I I, I think I became convinced really that you know, and we may get onto this, but that there are three things that sex and marriage mean biblically speaking there's a cosmological dimension which i touched on with ed about what it represents creation there's a worship dimension which is it represents you know throughout the old testament the worship of the true god and the worship who is unlike you and you can have sex with one person who's unlike you versus the worship of many gods who are just like you created things um, and sexual partners who are just like you and there may be many of them and those two things i, st I still think and still hold to be important and i think i preached on them as well that week but the third one which i think is the really sort of big momentous one in the in the letters of paul particularly in ephesians chapter five is that it represents christ and the church obviously as we do in every wedding ceremony and I feel like with, without appealing to marriage and without appealing to the meaning of how a wedding or a marriage preaches the gospel, it's quite difficult for people to see why the instructions about sexuality aren't completely arbitrary. Because they, why, why does it need to be one person? Why does it need to be somebody who doesn't look like you? Why does it need to be covenant forever? What are these? Why is it only one spouse? All these things. And I think when you when you work through how a, a wedding particularly, and a Christian wedding service, but more broadly how a marriage preaches the gospel, it immediately, I think it sort of subliminally shows you, I, you try to make it explicit as well, but at a sort of subtle level says, do you realize that if you were to change that detail, the gospel doesn't work? Like if you suddenly said, oh, actually, we just, we are exactly the same as one another. We're getting married together. You know, it's just the same life. And you're like, no, it's not, because that doesn't, that when transposed into the gospel key wouldn't work because this is God coming to save us, not just want someone else just like us. And so on. And there's so many examples. And I do think that the, this is you know, my shout out to my, I, I'm not an Anglican. Um, and at the moment, as Ed was <laughs> alluding to earlier, kind of relieved I'm not. But shout out for the Anglican liturgy on this point, where which is just so rich and deep in such a wonderfully thought through way of working out almost all the symbols that you could possibly connect between marriage and and the Christian gospel, and to make them as explicit as possible, even in the vows that people utter and the symbols that we, what people wear and the giving of rings, all these things. I just think that marriage is one of the richest pictures there is of union with Christ. 
And so it's a very obvious place to go if you're trying to teach teenagers why it matters. Yeah, brilliant. And I know you've also, in addition to that talk, you were involved in producing a video which is trying to capture that idea of how the wedding ceremony speaks to us of the deeper meaning and message and story behind marriage. And it's just, we've recently featured that on our blog. We think it's a really helpful resource. That's a video I think actually is available for churches to purchase and use. And how would you envisage that a church might use um, those videos you've produced, which is this kind of um, you with a voiceover over some images of a wedding telling that story? Yeah, I mean, they, that video grew out of the new day message you just mentioned i think that's how we came to do it and i mean what we did in our church was we actually used that like most churches have a sort of summary of what a wedding or marriage is at the start and if you don't have a very you might have a very formal liturgy where that's you're not open to ad lib at all but what we did was for many years use that as we may still do it in eastport i'm not sure as the sort of introductory track if you like so you know there's normally a bit in a wedding like the wedding's at two but you know the bride's not going to turn up until 2.10. So you welcome everybody. You say, you know, please turn your phones off and all that kind of gubbins. But then we play the video as a way of saying, this is the symbolism of what we're about to do. But the fact that it's a video means it doesn't feel quite so directive. And so we found it was quite a useful resource just to try and connect the dots. And in reality, what I do is most of the time when I do a wedding sermon, I'm doing some variant on that video as well, but more in obviously using the specifics of the day. So that's I I don't know if how many churches do that, but that's certainly how we've used it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I love that. And just a reminder to pastors, actually, weddings are also one of the great ways we get to subtly teach this to our people, actually, and to, uh, yeah, present that beautiful picture. I, I um, officiated a wedding, I spoke at a wedding where the people were really into board games. And so I had to my research into where's a board game where you kind of assume a character and then was using that to talk about their now assuming roles to tell this bigger story. And so pretty much anything is it's quite fun as a pastor. Yeah. How can I find what the couple's into and how I can tell this big story what marriage is through that and then the wedding also becomes a great way of teaching both the church but also there's no christians in the room here's the beauty of the gospel portrayed in the beauty of what marriage really is i just kind of think they're such yeah exciting opportunities yeah yeah there are i love that and so i wonder after many years of teaching uh to christians on this topic of sexuality what are some key things you've learned that you think might be helpful to people who are listening in who maybe also get to teach in this helpful tools or wisdom we can take yeah, good question. Uh, I always find it difficult to unbundle what I think I've learned from what I thought in the first place and have since discovered how right I was. <laughs> it's all the same, <laughs> I'm sure. Say, These are the things we've learned. Yeah. Yeah. You believe that for 15 years anyway. That's not, that's not what you've learned. <laughs> I think something I have learned in the sense of, uh, which you guys have helped me with, and actually particularly Ed's work and Sam and Andrew, I know I've heard you on it as well. I just heard them say it first and probably would have struck me just as much if I'd heard you say it. Is about the extent to which that giving the church a, a rationale, an apologetic rationale for what they believe is effective to a point, but what has to happen alongside it is uh, a formation of the church as family in which same-sex attracted people, gay people, however people self-describe really, can feel completely at home and can, in which it's not just rhetorical flourish that says you are part of a family here and you don't need to be married in a nuclear family. And, and I think what I've learned is not just that that is important, but also how difficult it is and how much the nuclear ideal still governs the way that an awful lot of people in Britain and in the church live their lives. So I think that's something I've learned. So that's something that probably when I gave the message you referred to in 2007, I hadn't really thought about. I probably would have affirmed it if you'd said it, but I wouldn't have thought about its implications. I, I'm now finding that almost every time I talk about sexuality, 
so at least one person and often a number of people in the church will then say, well, now we need to talk about singleness. And now we need to talk about how family works in the church for single people, because if you don't do that, then it's, I mean, I, I just think Ed's concept of the plausibility problem is just such a helpful one. It's why I've asked him to come and speak at our church, because I still need you guys to help me on that and how to do it in practice and to help equip the church to do it well. So I think that the cultural apologetic stuff still stands, but I think the, may, the way society's moved in the last 15 years has made the pastoral imperative much stronger. Um, and so I think that's probably a big thing I have learned in the proper sense of, I didn't know that. And I think I do more and more now. Yeah, that's so good. You reminded me as I saying that I preached at your church, I remember on singleness, and it was around that kind of plausibility of this from my own experience, but more on the singleness and sexuality. And I remember talking about the importance of love and intimacy and how we receive love in different ways. And I'm definitely a physical touch kind of guy. And it was one of the first times I've spoken in a whole church context in singleness. And there was just this queue afterwards of people, mostly lovely older ladies, wanted to give me a hug. And I learned a really important lesson that day. I, well, I really receive love from my close friends through physical touch. <laughs> not necessarily friends. And so I've learned never again have I said it in that way in front of a crowd. <laughs> it was so lovely, but also slightly awkward being there for ages. So all these people wanted to hug me. It's like, okay, I'm going to refine how I say oh, this. Oh, no, you see, I, I'm, I'm all the way there, right? I, I hug everyone. So, yeah. <laughs> if you see me wandering around knock yourself out <laughs> you're gonna have people taking you out in the street now it's Andrew Wilson we're gonna hug him <laughs> the last thing I was thinking I wanted to ask you you're um a, a married man married to a woman speaking then on this topic from some personal experience you said but now as someone who is married to someone with the opposite sex and I know many pastors actually think feel nervous engaging in this conversation teaching their churches about this particularly if it hasn't been their experience and they're not living out a single life and celibate life now and stuff. I just wonder, any thoughts on that? Any advice to people who find themselves in this situation? I just feel, do they have the, I don't know, the right or the um, integrity from which to talk about this? Yeah, again, I'm, I'm quoting Sam Albury as if he's sort of, as if he's somehow hovering in this conversation as a fourth member, but he he really helped. I was doing it anyway and I just thought you can't possibly I, I think my level I'm like this is just ridiculous you cannot possibly tell pastors unless you have experience X you can't teach about it I, I've been asked to speak at a women's conference about femininity I've been asked to speak you know I, I speak about all kinds of things I speak. I have to speak about Jewishness I have to speak about circumcision I have to, there's all kinds of things that come up in the Bible and if you play that guy you really are I, you teach about angels I'm not an angel it's just bonkers um but I think that at a deeper level, Sam really helped me with the idea that it was actually how alienating it would be to a single pastor. And, and but, but obviously much the most influential pastor in the world is a single man. I happened to meet him last March in the Vatican. Um, and uh, you're basically telling him, you can't talk about marriage because you haven't experienced that. And you think this is just ridiculous. Like, and I think I hadn't really said, so Sam turns the tables quite winsomely but helped in, in his book on it and just said, if you go there, you say you can't teach on this. You're also implicitly saying, I can't teach on that. And in a nice sort of, you know, judo way, uses the momentum of the opponent's argument against him. And I think that that probably strengthened me in my in a conviction I already had. But I think in the end that you, you can't. Paul talks about marriage as a single guy. You, you just can't go there. Um, an awful lot of the Bible is not immediately my experience. It's almost all written by and for Jewish people. And I'm not a Jew. And I can't if I if I let that strip me of all the material in the Bible that does not directly apply to me or which I have not got lived experience to validate. I'm never going to say anything. And I, I just think that's very um, there were no British people in the Bible. Um, so I just think I've got to get over that. I know that's a kind of abrupt way of saying it, but Sam helped me say it in that much warmer and that's <laughs> no, brilliant, really helpful. And I just and I think it's probably really important for single people listening 
to this podcast just to hear that because I've the biggest pushback I've heard about married people speaking on singleness is being from single people who've done this, what do they know sort of thing. And I think that's been really unfortunate because nobody stands up at the weddings that I've, and I've preached a hundred at the weddings. Nobody stood up as I've begun and said, what does he know about marriage? You know, and I think we've, you know, we've got to just, I think you know, Sam spinning around that way has been really helpful. And single people who make it difficult for their pastor to speak about singleness are not doing their pastor a service. They're not doing themselves a service either. And it's just, yeah, probably worth, worth us all hearing that. Well, we are out of time for today, sadly. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. Don't forget, you can find Andrew's article online and also that video we talked about, This Is About That, is featured on our blog in a recent blog. You'll find links to that and all the other resources we've mentioned in the show notes. Thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Maybe you think that your church leader would benefit from hearing from Andrew's wisdom about teaching and sexuality. Why not send this podcast to them, point them to living out and the ways that we could help and serve them. We'll be back in a few weeks time interviewing another author hope you can join us then Music.